All right, we're starting a new series today from the book of Genesis, focusing on the life of Joseph. Joseph is a famous Old Testament character. A lot of people have heard of him in church. Even a lot of people outside of church have heard of this character, Joseph. He's a a very popular boy's name, Joseph. So there's, there's a lot known about him. He's known for dreams he had. He had famous dreams, this boy. He's known for a coat he wore, a technicolored coat. When you have a technicolored coat and you have dreams, you put it together and you make a musical, which also is very famous, has run for many years about this guy's story. He had brothers. He had many, many brothers, Joseph did. He, was, he went through some interesting life experience. He ended up in slavery. He ended up being a slave. He ended up in prison. Not the best start. He also en- ended up being risen to great pa- heights of power and authority in the land of Egypt, where he found himself. Ended up. Uh, he experienced a famine in the land uh, that he was in. Many people without food, but because God, God used him, he was able to help them out in that sense. And if you've never read the story of um, Joseph, or you haven't kind of read it recently and it's a bit rusty, I encourage you through this series. It's a good opportunity to go open your Bible, start at Genesis chapter 37. Read it to the end of the book and you will see the life story of Joseph. And we're going to be preaching through that between now and summer, kind of covering all the, the bits and pieces in his life. We've entitled the, um, the series uh, Joseph uh, Privilege Prison Palace because that just mirrors his life. He, was, he began in a position of privilege in his family. He was a favored son. Everything went wrong for Joseph, and he found himself in prison. And then by the end of his story, he'd been raised up, and he was second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, and he was living in a palace. So he had quite a roller coaster ride. Now, before we dive into Joseph, I want to just kind of take a step back um, and kind of frame it. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to do an introduction to the whole, sort of the whole series, and then we'll start the text proper next week. Now, when you get into a character in the Bible or a section of the Bible, you've got to work out where it fits in the grand story of the Bible. And if you want to sum up the grand story of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation, what God's purposes for the world are, you can sum it up in four words. And the four words are creation, fall, reconciliation, and consummation. It begins with creation, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God made the heavens and the earth, and it was all good. You can read about that. He created the animals and he created man and he created the sun and the stars in the sky. And he made it all and he pronounced over it, it was good. And then he put man and woman in the garden and he said, go multiply, fill the earth. And he was pleased with his creation. In fact, he said, the end is very good, just how he wanted it. But then we get to Genesis chapter 3 and we have fall, the second part of the story, where man chooses to rebel against God's kind, benevolent, gracious rule and says, no, God, we want to be God. We want to be in charge. And everything goes wrong from that point. Everything is shattered. Uh, Man's relationship with God is shattered. Man's relationship with woman is shattered. Man's relationship with the created order is shattered. Everything's broken. Everything goes wrong at that point. And a man finds himself under God's judgment because he's rebelled against God's rulership. And so everything falls apart. And then we have from Genesis 4 all the way up to the, nearly the end of Revelation, we have the section called Reconciliation, where God is fixing what went wrong. Something went wrong, something got broken, and God is fixing it throughout the Bible, what went wrong. And when we preached through the Gospel of John last year, we saw actually how that kind of culminated in Christ. He was the plan. He came. He sorted it out. He, he mended the, the relationship between man and God. And through him, we can have relationship with God. 
and we can be reconciled to God. And then you have the final part of the Bible, consummation, which is the last two chapters, Revelation 20, uh, 21 and 22, where basically there's a new heavens and a new earth, and everything is made good again. And God said, I will be your people, you will be, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and they will be, we will be together forever. So there's the kind of the four planks of the story of the Bible. And where does Joseph's story fit in? Well, he fits in right at the beginning of that reconciliation. We've had Genesis 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 3, everything went wrong. And, jo- and jo- uh, Joseph turns up by Genesis 37. So it's really early in the story. And what that means is a lot of things we know about the Bible haven't happened. There's no Ten Commandments yet. They happen in Exodus. There's no kingdom, kingdom of Israel, that we might know about. Kings like David and Solomon, mighty men like that. That hadn't happened. The prophets that we read hadn't been, hadn't been born and hadn't started prophesying. Jesus hadn't come. The church hadn't started as we understand it now. None of that had happened. We're really early days of what's going on. And we're going to see how Joseph's story fits into God's big story of how he's going to bring mankind back to himself, how he's going to reconcile it, and how he's going to see what happens. And the big idea of what we're going to look at today is basically God's sovereign plan of working that out, of bringing mankind to himself, reconciling man to God and God to man. That's what we're looking at today. And we'll see it through the story of Joseph. There are three big themes that I want to highlight now. So as we preach through it week by week, you'll be thinking of these and you'll be seeing them worked out in the life of Joseph. Because there's lots that goes on in Joseph's life. We see him dealing with family issues. Anyone here had family issues ever in their life? (laughs) The laughing is like, oh yeah. We see Joseph dealing with family issues, with parents and siblings. We see unjust suffering in Joseph's life. Anyone felt like they've suffered unjustly? Because things have happened to them. We see um, Joseph dealing with areas of temptation in his life. Things that he's kind of like, I really shouldn't do that. But they're they're presented to him and they seem good uh, to him. Anyone ever dealt with temptation in their life? And I also see him dealing with forgiveness. You've ever had to be in a position where you feel like you need to forgive someone for something they've done. But what they've done to you is really quite horrible or quite mean. And you've wrestled with that kind of, God, you've forgiven me and I need now to forgive someone else. We see that in Joseph's life as well. But overarching all that is God's big plan. And what I want us to make sure is we, we keep our eyes on the big plan as well as looking at the individual moments of Joseph's life. And the first thing we're going to look at, we've got three things I want to look at, these three themes. The first one in God's sovereign plan is his promises. His promises. Now, before we can dive into Joseph, we need to go back looking at his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather, which is why I said let's start in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I'm just going to read a whole bunch of stuff to hopefully frame this story because by Genesis 12, we've had the fall. Everything's gone wrong. Man has gone his own way. And there, there are accounts of man just becoming more and more wicked and evil. And just everything's a mess after they've rebelled against God. And then we get to Genesis 12. And there's kind of a, a break in the story. And there's a kind of a moment where things look like they could be turning around. And God comes to a man. His name is Abraham. We know him as Abraham, but at the time he's Abraham or Abraham, however you want to pronounce it. But he is, he's just minding his own business uh, as a pagan. And, he's, and then God comes to him. It says, that, uh, Genesis 12, verse 1, 1 to 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Get down to verse 7. 
It says, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So God appears to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you, I'm going to bless you so that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed for you. And I'm going to give you this land that you're kind of in at the moment. I'm going to give you land uh, for your offspring, for your descendants. If we skip down to Genesis 13 and we go to verse 14, it says, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated for him, lift up your eyes and look from this place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that no one can count the dust of the earth. Your offspring also can be counted. So he's basically promised Abraham, you're going to have a, an awful lot of descendants, like the dust in the ground. So that's a, that's a lot. And he says, and this land, you're going to have this land, and through you I'm going to bless the nations of the world. Let's go through to... Verse 15, it's worth pointing out at this point, Abraham didn't have any children. (laughs) Abraham was very old, really old. And so was his wife, and uh, his wife Sarah was described as barren. She couldn't have children. So between them, they were unable to have kids. Yet God had given him these staggering promises. You're going to have all these offspring, um, and this land is going to be yours. But actually, Abraham was just a guy with a wife and no children. But then we see in verse 15, it says... Uh, sorry, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And, um, but Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, and Abraham said, Behold you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and the number of the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So God, God says, Actually, you're going to have a son. You're going to have an heir that's going to be yours, not kind of part of your household because you're childless and you have to kind of pass your earthly goods on to someone else. You're going to have it. And, they're going to be, and your offspring will be vast like the stars in the sky. Let's flip over to chapter 17. Sorry, verse, uh, yeah, chapter 17, verses 5. To eight. So that Abraham carries on. It says, God came to Abraham and it says, No longer shall your name be called Abraham, you shall now be called Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude, which is a really ironic name when you have no children. It's almost, it's almost a mean joke unless you know something that Abraham doesn't know. And it says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations and kings shall come for you. And I will establish my covenant between um, me and you and your offspring and throughout their generations forever everlasting covenant to be your God to you and your offspring after you. I will give you to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So Abraham's name has been changed. He's now Abraham father of a multitude, but he still hasn't got any children. And then it says in verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 16, it says, um, he's saying uh, to Abraham about his wife, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations, kings of people shall come from her. So basically, he's promising, he's saying, you're going to have a son, and you're going to have a natural son by your wife, Sarah. And it's not going to be anything else. You're not going to have to plan it on. Go down to verse 18, verse 10. 
And it says, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So then it gets very specific. God says, you're going to have a son, and you're going to have it in a year when I come to you. And if you read the story forward, Abraham and Sarah have a son. He is called Isaac. And so the child of promise comes, the one that God had promised to them. And this is the beginning of the outworking of God's promise to Abraham to say, actually, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky and the dust on the ground. You're going to have a multitude of them. And so Isaac is the beginning of them. If we fast forward, go to Genesis 26. Now Isaac has kind of grown up, and he is now he is Abraham's um, son, and Abraham has died by this point. So Isaac's dad has died, and he's, and then, but God comes to Abraham, and he says to him, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn this land, and I will be with you and bless you. Um, for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give you your offspring these land and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So basically God comes to Isaac after Abraham's answer and reiterates the promise. What I promised to your dad, what I promised to Abraham still is true because I'm God and I am working this through. So he says your offspring are going to be like what I said to your dad. You're going to have this multiplication of offspring like the stars in the sky and this land that you're going to have. Isaac then has a son. Actually he has two but one of them we're going to be interested in is called Jacob. And Jacob is an interesting character. Jacob grows up and then if you go to Genesis 32... We're getting near to chapter 37. Genesis chapter 32, and we go to verse 24. And it says, verse uh, 34, verse 24, it says, a famous story from the life of Jacob. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him, with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Joseph, he touched his hip socket, and Joseph's hip was put out of a joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Jacob, the grandson of um, Abraham, He's grown up. He wrestles with God. He has this dynamic counsel from God. There's the story of Jacob uh, having the vision of the, the, um, the, he- the angels going to and from heaven in that place. And God comes to him and changes his name to Israel. Now, that should, for us, that should start ringing all sorts of things in our minds. We've heard of Israel. We know where this is going. We know what Israel is. Israel is the nation of the people of God. And he's, uh, Jacob's name has been changed by God to Israel. And if we go forward in verse chapter 35, last one, verses 10 to 12. God says to Jacob, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give you the land, your offspring after you. Okay, to sum up, God has come to Abraham and he's made astounding promises. He has then reiterated those promises to his son and his grandson. And so the promises are carrying through the generations. God said, I've made a promise and I will bring it about. I will give you great um, multiplication in your descendants. There will be a mighty nation. In fact, nations, plural there. There's going to be a lot of them like the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you this land. 
that you, you've been wandering around in as a nomad with your cattle. You're going to have this. You're going to own this. It's going to be yours. And through you, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. And to follow the story through, Joseph is the son of Jacob. If we go to chapter 37, where kind of Joseph, um, Joseph's story starts, 37 verse 1, it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourn, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of jo- Jacob. So basically, Joseph comes immediately on the scene because he's one of the sons of Jacob. So you can see where it's going. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph and all his brothers will come to them. But actually, the promise of God is being fulfilled out in the generation. And for us to learn, looking through the story of Joseph, is God makes promises and he keeps them. But here's the kicker. They sometimes can take a long time. They sometimes can take a long time. God reiterated, he said to Abraham, then he reiterated to Isaac, then he reiterated to Jacob. And he's still holding it through, even though Abraham is dead, and by this time, Isaac is dead. But the promises of God stand firm. Abraham didn't see the fulfillment in its fullest sense. He, saw, he had a son, he saw that, but he didn't see kind of all of it. Neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob. And even when we go through the life of Joseph, he doesn't see it all either. But we have God makes his promises. But what they did do, here's the thing for us, what they did do was they believed them, they exercised faith in them, and they waited patiently. So they almost did two things. They exercised a forward-looking faith. We read our New Testament, we find comments about Abraham, I think there's about three of them I found, where it says that he believed God. God said some stuff to him and he believed it. He took it by faith. When God says, look at those stars, your offspring are going to be like that. And he looked at his wife. <laughs> no, she's, she's barren and I'm old and things don't work quite as well as they used to. You know, and, and we have no children. He believed it. He believed it. He had forward-looking faith. And it says Isaac and Jacob did the same. They believed the promises of God when God came and spoke to them. So there was an active faith. But at the same time, they waited patiently. God says, this land that you're standing on, where your tent is set up and where your sheep roam, is going to be yours. But in their lifetime, it never was. They didn't own it. They kind of wandered through it and wandered around it and never fully got it. But God said, one day, this is going to be yours. And for us as believers here, we live life like that. God speaks to us. God says things in his word and we are to take them by faith in a forward-looking, active way and saying, yes, we believe them, we will get behind them. But at the same time, we are to wait patiently for the fulfillment of those promises. For those guys in here in the Old Testament, they they hadn't got a clue about Jesus and many of the prophets didn't. They prophesied about something they couldn't see. Jesus comes on the scene, so there's a fulfillment of that. But then as we go through the New Testament, there's still more to come that we haven't fully seen. There's more things about the gospel going to all the nations. There are places and people who've never heard the name of Jesus. There's places on this earth where people still don't know about him in any sense. And we're waiting for that to come about. There's a new heavens and a new earth that is talked about at the end of Revelation where it says there's going to be no more crying and no more sickness and no more pain and no more death and no more tears and no more suffering. And I turn on the news and it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's like... That's all I hear on the news. You're looking for good news sometimes. And actually, we're, we're waiting for something to come. We're waiting for that final part of the story, the consummation of things to come together. And it's not here yet. But we are to set ourselves in faith, saying, God, you said it, 
and it will come to pass. It will come to pass. We don't see it all now. We're looking with the eye of faith. Sometimes things come in our way that actively kind of go against it, that trip us up, that make it hard, but we are to persevere in faith and wait patiently for it. I don't know if you're personally living with things in your life that you feel God has said and that haven't come to pass. As I was kind of doing this, I was reflecting on a few things, and I remember uh, when God spoke to me about leading a church, and I was in my early 20s, and that's a long time ago, I don't mind saying, it feels like a long time ago, and only now in my late 30s am I actually seeing the fruition of what God had spoken to me. I had to wait patiently for years and years and years and years, and there are still things God said to me that I haven't come to pass and don't look like they're anywhere near coming to pass in my life, that I am waiting patiently in faith for him to come about. I don't know if there are things in your life like that, where you're looking and thinking, God, you kind of spoke about this, but I don't know when it's coming, and I have to wait, and I have to endure. My elder brother, Stephen, he's three and a half years older than me, and he literally just became a Christian about six months a year ago. And I know from my parents, they've been in faith for him for decades, (laughs) decades, praying and believing and saying, God, save him. And then it finally happened. But, but now the end of the story is great because we can see it. But actually, just two years ago, if you spoke to my mum about Steve not going to church, she'd almost well up, you know, tears because actually she, she wanted this. And but she had to wait patiently and persevere in prayer. And so for wherever you find yourself now, waiting for the things of God, the lesson we can learn from these guys is to wait in faith. If God has said it, it's going to come to pass. That's the promise. And he's going to move it and he's going to do it. And we are called to persevere in faith. All right, second one. God's sovereign plan. Human decisions. Now, it's great when God promises things and they come about, but we have a tendency as people to try and help God along. Have you ever done that? We try and move God along and kind of say, come on, Lord, <laughs> let me give you a hand. Because running the universe can be quite a lot. And so I'll just help you out on this one. And so sometimes things come into our lives that we don't expect, we don't plan, and they can seem to derail the, the purposes and plans of God. Because it's almost like, that doesn't look right. What's going on there? Where did that come from? And suddenly everything seems to be going wrong. If we look at, at the life of Abraham... Abraham's a, cl- a classic of this. God had come to him and said, don't worry, I'm going to bless you and you go through you. Nations are going to come and stuff. And we see Abraham doing some crazy things. He decides, he gets together with his wife and it's like, God's promised us a son. That is excellent. And his wife comes up with this idea and says, well, we can't have kids, so why don't you, and I, I, I'm not able to, why don't you go and sleep with my maidservant, get her pregnant, and then the son that, that, that comes from there, assuming it's a son, I guess, because, you know, 50-50, that will be your heir. And so we'll have an heir, just like God said. We'll, we'll have the heir. And it, through them, we'll have this nation, that just like God had promised. And Abraham was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And so he does it, and we have um, Ishmael is the product of that good idea. Um, and... God comes and says, what are you playing at? I'm God, I can do this. And so we see Abraham trying to kind of help the plans of God by doing his own thing. And basically, it caused a whole bunch of problems. 
It pulls a whole bunch of problems in his family, in his marriage, and, and, and for the plans of God. But God's purposes still prevailed. He did have his own son by Sarah, Isaac. But actually you see him trying to help God out, and it caused way more problems than it solved because they were trying to help God. What about Isaac? Isaac um, got married to a lady called Rebecca. Uh, they had, she had children, but she had twins. She had Jacob, we've mentioned, but he had a brother called Esau, and Esau was the elder brother. Esau was born first, um, and he came out. But Isaac preferred um, Esau over Jacob. Even though God had spoke, the, the older will serve the younger. He's actually saying, My, I've actually chosen Jacob. But Isaac preferred Esau, the elder. It says that he was a hunter, he was a man's man. He went out and he killed game and he, he fed his dad with it. So he liked Esau. His wife, however, preferred Isaac. He preferred Isaac. He was a little bit more of a mummy's boy. He said he stayed in the tents and he was kind of a bit more at home, uh, kind of there. And so he was with his mum. And so he was a bit more, she preferred him. And when it came to handing out the blessing at the end, kind of the end of Isaac's life, he was going to bless his children. He wanted to bless Isaac kind of with the sort of the family blessing. You're my eldest, I will bless you. And Rebecca gets together with um, with Isaac and basically said, let's try and nick the blessing that you got from your father. And so you've got this dysfunctional family going on right here. This would make really good EastEnders television, I'm just saying. There's plot points. There's nothing new under heaven. And so Isaac, oh, sorry, Jacob goes to his dad disguised as his brother because Isaac's getting a bit old and a bit blind. And Isaac, Esau was really hairy, so he wraps himself in kind of skins and, I, and Esau's clothes and goes to him and basically nicks the blessing of his father that he's trying to give to his other son. And so it's all kind of all sorts of mess going on there when actually God says, I've chosen Jacob. He's, be the, he's going to be the one to get it through. Isaac's doing this. They're trying to use subterfuge under it. Then you've got Jacob himself. Now, his name means deceiver. So he's, you know, you think you're on a, you're on a winner there with that one. He's involved in trying to deceive his father to get his brother's birthright out of him. He even kind of gets him to buy it off him just with, a, with some food and stuff. But as a result, when he, when he manages to steal his brother's birthright, what does his brother want to do? He wants to kill him. Of course he does. That's what brothers do. So he wants to kill him. You nick something that was mine. I'm going to have you. So Jacob has to run away. He has to flee his family, the family that bears the promise of God. And he has to flee and he disappears. And he ends up with his uncle. He's more of a crook than he is. And so Jacob's now like, well, why? I found myself way over here where I should be over there with my family. My brother wants to kill me. I've stolen the birthright. I'm now working over here kind of almost as an indentured slave for my, for my uncle. But then it, it works out quite well. He just said, because there's a really nice girl here I like. In fact, it's my uncle's daughter. And I'm thinking, aye, aye, I like her. And the uncle says, right, work seven years for me and you can have Rachel's hand in marriage. And he's like, yeah, she's the hot one. I'll have her. So he works seven years and on the wedding day, I don't know how this works practically, but on the wedding day, the, the bride is not actually Rachel. It's her older sisters who is described as being weak in the eyes. No, no idea what that means, but she's not Rachel. And the elder sister's called Leah. And on the wedding, wedding day... It's Leah who he marries by mistake. Again, I don't know how that happens, but he married the wrong one and had the way night with the wrong sister. And so he wakes up in the morning and it's like, oh, you're not Rachel. It's like, darn. And so the uncle says, well, you've got to work another seven years for my other daughter. And so he ends up working 14 years and he's got two wives. This is a massively dysfunctional family. I don't know if you look at your family and how, how you view them. Do you think any of your family are a touch dysfunctional? I'm waiting, all the people are like, mm-hmm. 
if the family are with you, you kind of do a small no, you know. But this is a dysfunctional family. We've got blatant sin in here. We've got people trying to kind of subvert the will of God. We've got people just victims of circumstance and things that are happening going on. And the key for us is that we looked at the first thing. God's sovereign plan works in spite of human circumstances. It works in spite of our sins. It works in spite of the things that come into our lives. God is sovereign, and he will bring his plans and purposes to fruition. We make all sorts of decisions for all sorts of reasons, some good reasons, some not-so-good reasons, some blatantly sinful reasons. We make decisions in our life, and we bear the consequences. But overarching all of that is God's sovereign plan to bring about his purposes, to bless the nations of the world, to make... Abraham's descendants into a mighty nation. And we'll see it in the life of Joseph. We see Joseph arrogantly tell his brothers, you're all going to bow down to me, by the way, because I had a dream about it. If I had a brother like that, I do have two brothers. I would have duffed one of them, you know, the smaller one, if he had said that to me. And then he said, then his father gets involved. He says, oh, by the way, you, you and mum are going to do it as well. You're going to bow down to me as well. Like that. And he's like, oh, really? Is that right? Then we see Joseph... They did it proper in those days. When they didn't like their brother, they, just, they told the dad he was dead and sold him into slavery. I mean, that's, that's better than just you know, giving them a dead leg. So Joseph now is now sent into slavery down to Egypt. We'll see. You know, that's a circumstance he couldn't have planned for. He goes there. He ends up in prison because he's falsely accused of rape. You know, it's just, it goes horribly wrong for Joseph. Some of them are his own dumb decisions. Some of the things that just happened to him. But we see by the end of the story, God uses him to save his entire family and preserve the promise that he had made to Abraham. Because there's a great famine comes on all the lands. And because of how God uses Joseph, he saves not only the nations around, but his own family who are the heirs of the promise that God has given. If they hadn't, they'd have all died and God's promise would have ended. But God was working it all the way through. We see it in the New Testament. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at the end of John's Gospel and we have one of the most kind of glaring omissions, you know, one of the disciples, Peter, what does he do? Do you know Jesus? No. <laughs> don't know him at all. Gets asked again, he gets asked again. No, I don't know Jesus. He, he fouls up in the most spectacular way possible. Then God in his mercy puts it in the Bible that 2,000 years later we're still reading about it. Way to go, Peter. You know, he totally messed up when Jesus needed him and he, he just, he left like all the other disciples. But what happened to Peter? Right at the end of John's Gospel, what? He was restored by Jesus personally. And then what happened to him? He led the church. He set up a Pentecost. Preached, 3,000 saved. He, he led the mission to the Gentiles out of the Jewish kind of enclave Christianity had become. And then he led it out when he went to see Cornelius. And the Spirit of God fell on the Gentiles. And the, 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 the promise to Abraham about the blessing going forth to the nations was coming through Peter as he spoke to Gentile believers. And they got saved and filled the Spirit. And so, awesome. God's plans and purposes. It says in Romans 8.28 that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That actually God will ultimately work all things out. I don't know what circumstances you faced here in your life. Think about what actually brings you here today, now. Why are you in Sutton Coalfield now? For most of you, it's probably an awful long way from where you were born. For me, it's about 2,000 miles. But here I am, preaching to you guys. What brought you here? What circumstances brought you to here and now? What decisions have you made? Good ones, bad ones? 
I reflected on some of my ones. Uh, when I was leaving college, and I didn't know what to do, <laughs> and I was kind of just a, a stupid 18-year-old, um, you know, I did what everyone else was doing around me, <laughs> applied to university. I didn't fancy getting a job, looked far too much like hard work. And so I thought I'd um, apply to university. I, I, I applied to a bunch of universities, do a bunch of courses of stuff I liked. I failed my A-levels spectacularly, and none of them wanted me. Surprise, surprise. All my offers were withdrawn. It's like, oh, okay. So then I had to do another year, year um, college, which was utterly miserable. And at the end of that, I realized I, I assessed myself academically and realized I wasn't as smart as I'd like to be. And so I had to kind of do something that was a lot more reasonable, and teaching was an option for me. <laughs> Back then, you didn't need much because they accepted me. So I found myself applying for teaching positions. I went to university in Bristol, to the uh, University of West England in Bristol, found myself there four years trained to be a primary school teacher, which I hated every minute of it. But Jesus was good. I got saved there. I got baptized in water there. I got baptized in the spirit there. I got turned on to church and God and everything he was doing. And I came out at the end of that convinced I didn't want to be a teacher. And so I thought, what do you do now? I've wasted four years being uh, training for his qualification I really don't want, and I don't want to go and teach, and I'm not qualified to do anything. What do you do? Take a year out. <laughs> I just, this, is, this is great. I can just keep going like this. So I took a year out. I did a year project, and on that year project, I got sent to a, a town in Cambridgeshire, and I met a young lady called Melanie, who is now my wife. We celebrate 15 years of marriage in April. So my life suddenly started turning around a little bit, I then, by the end of that year, decided teaching was something I want to do because God had dealt with my pride. And so I became a primary school teacher and absolutely loved it. I had a wonderful time. Through that, I then got offered a position on a local church staff. I worked on the church for a few years. I, everything then kind of went pear-shaped in the church, very sour. We then had to leave out of that. We ended up in another town called Bishop Stortford where we'd met the church leader there. He offered my wife and I both jobs in the church. We met a bunch of people there who we loved. And we said, when we're going to go and plant a church in Sutton Coldfield, they came with us. And that's why we're here today. Circumstances brought us to this place. Some good, some not so good. We made some lifelong friends along the way. But actually, that's how God brought us here today. And I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what you're dealing with. But I know that whether they're good or they're bad, whether you have caused them through your own silliness or they've happened to you because someone else has done something to you, God is working out his purposes in your life. You haven't been neglected. You haven't been forgotten. God is working out his purposes. He has a purpose and a calling for each of you. For many of you, it's right here now, part of this church, because that's where you are. That's where God's got you now. And you're to work out that as best you can and give yourself to that. For some of you, if you're not from here and you're visitors, there are other places, but God is calling you to do it. And we'll see it as we look through the life of Joseph. When things go bad, God is still working his way through it. Last one, and then we'll finish. Last one. God's sovereign plan, a savior. A savior. Right back in Genesis chapter 3, when everything goes wrong, the fall happens, there's a hint there. Verses 14 and 15, it says, I will send one to crush the serpent's head. The serpent's head, meaning the devil, the one who kind of calls it the enemy, said there will be one to come and crush it. It's the first hint of a savior to come. And as we look through the, the story of Joseph, I want us to always be thinking about a savior. A savior, because the bottom line is Jesus is a better Joseph. Jesus is a better Abraham. Jesus is a better Isaac. Jesus is a better Jacob. Jesus is a better Joseph. Abraham was called to be a sojourner, a nomad in the land that he lived. Jesus came to earth 
as a sojourner from his place, heaven. He came to earth. He even says in the Gospels that he had no place to lay his head. Abraham was said that I, through you I will bless the nations. Jesus is the blessing to the nations of the world. Isaac, he was a promised son. And he came by supernatural birth. Jesus is the promised son who came by supernatural virgin birth. Isaac was the only son of his father and beloved. Jesus is the only son of his father and beloved. Isaac was offered as sacrifice by Abraham. Jesus was the sacrifice. Isaac carried the wood up the hill to his sacrifice. Jesus carried the cross to Golgotha. Isaac was spared. Jesus died. Jesus Jesus is a better Jacob, another one born supernaturally through a barren woman. Jacob had a vision of heaven touching earth, the angels going to and from earth. Jesus was heaven touching earth. He even says that in John 1, 49. um, Jacob was promised the land. Jesus promises a new heaven and a new earth one day. Jacob was renamed Israel, the name of God's people, God's ethnic people. We bear the name Christians of Christ, all God's people from all nations, all tribes. And we're going to see in the life of Joseph, we're going to see the the privilege, the prison, the palace, which actually mirrors the life of Christ. He was in glory with his father for all eternity. He then came to earth. He laid aside his majesty. He gave it up. He dwelt as a man, born as a baby. He lived that life. He died on a cross despised, rejected, scorned but then what? He was raised up victorious all authority, all glory, all honour all power to Jesus so it mirrors his life even Joseph's life mirrors Christ Jesus is a better Joseph Joseph was rejected by those closest to him so was Jesus he was wrongfully accused of something he hadn't done just like Jesus he was raised up to a place of authority, just like Jesus. He showed forgiveness to those who hurt him, his brothers who sold him into slavery. And ultimately, he saved God's people, just like Jesus. However you read the Bible, whichever part you go to, it's all about Jesus. It's always all about Jesus, even if it's hard to see sometimes. Read John's Gospel, it's obvious, there he is. Read Genesis, not quite so easy, but we'll lead you to see it. The Old Testament is full of hints and signs that the New Testament fully reveals in Christ. And we get to live in the light of that. And I don't know where you find yourself today. If you're not a believer here, we would love you to get to know Jesus. We want you to get to know him. If you want to talk to me and what that means, I'd love to talk to you about having a relationship with Jesus. If you're a believer here today, as we study the book of Joseph, as you read it in your own time, as you come on a Sunday, I want you to be expectant that God will speak. God will speak to you about Jesus. He'll speak to you about your life. I want you to be looking for your Savior in this, looking for where he appears, where there are hints of him. So we're always bringing it back to Jesus. And lastly, I want you to be pressing on towards him. Do you want to stand up? And we're going to pray to finish there. Do you want to close your eyes and maybe open out your hands or something, whatever you want to do to engage with God? I'm just going to pray for us, and I'm going to hand over to Phil, who's going to lead us in worship I just want you to be thinking about some of the things I raised there as we think about the story of Joseph 
I want you to think about the promises of God, things God has said to you. Think about the big ones. God saved you. He's declared you not guilty. You are his child. You will be with him forever. He is your father in heaven. He loves you. He's given you the Holy Spirit. They are wonderful promises to celebrate and enjoy. God may have said some personal things to you, actually, about things where you're going. Maybe nations he's put on your heart, directions he's set your life. Bring them before God now and say, I'm going to trust in you for them. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to try and create them. I'm going to wait patiently and press forward. I'm not going to try and do a, an Abraham and a Sarah and get the, the servant girl pregnant. I'm going to wait for your timing, Lord. What about your circumstances in your life, wherever you find yourself now, whether it's by choice or by someone else's actions? I want you to commit those to Jesus and say, God, the reason I'm here today is because you're working out your purposes. I don't always see it. I don't know where it's, where it's going. I don't know what the next step is. But because I find myself here, it's because you're working out your purposes and they're good. And oh God, you are going to take everything I've done, good and bad, and you're going to work it for your glory. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? You can't stuff up too much for God's grace and God's mercy. That's awesome. And Lord God, I want to thank you above all that you are our saviour. Lord God, that you have saved us. You are the God of Abraham. You are the God of Isaac. You are the God of Jacob. You are the God of Joseph. And you're the God of Real Life Church. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness down through generations of Christians. Hundreds of years, thousands of years, all over this world that you are the one who saves, Lord. And we want to say we love you and we praise you today. You are wonderful. And God's people said, Amen.